Welcome to the Macomb Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here, as always, with co-host Alan Goldman. How are you, Alan? Okay, Mike. I'm pretty excited about, uh, about our guest today. Oh, great. Would you introduce him, please? Uh, Javier Retigor. <laughs> I guess is, you're less uh, excited than me, Alan. <laughs> Based no, on that I'm reaction. Always, I'm always excited when Javier <laughs> I know. is on. Uh, as, uh, as, of course, I follow him in as different places where he's uh, publishing his articles, whether it be the Time of Israel or, or Mosaic or, or in, in more long forms and more long form stuff he does. Um, so we're always excited to have uh, Chaviv on and to hear his thoughts, which are, are um, usually enlightening and have come from different and deeper perspectives than you often get in, uh, in just looking at the headlines, let's say. Yeah. Welcome back, Chaviv. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Sure. Our pleasure. So uh, you've been putting some thought into aspects of the UAE deal, which we've you know, all of us have been talking about quite a bit, but you're sort of looking for things that people haven't really brought out, things that people haven't maybe noticed or spent enough time analyzing. Like you were talking about uh, where the Palestinians fit into all this. Yeah, um, I, uh, you know, there's a, there's it's 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 the fun part of my job. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, it's a hard job. You're feeding to feed a newspaper is uh, is uh, it, it's never satiated. It's always hungry. So you're always constantly chasing after, you know, writing a thing. And you're always sure that if you had one more day, you know, it would be twice as good and, <laughs> and all of that. So it's kind of a strange uh, life. But um, it, it, the, the challenge really is to try and ask the questions that um, that the sort of general narrative isn't asking. And we have a lot of questions in this deal, um, in, in these peace deals that are less well we, that we I think we are more confused about than we than we understand. In other words, we we're not aware how um, confused we are. But in fact, why is this happening? Not why is this happening in the sense that Netanyahu has explained to us that it's peace for peace and no longer peace for territory, and that Israel's strong and st- people want to make peace with strong nations, and all of these explanations that are very self-congratulatory. And he but I, I, I think have the benefit of being true also. They're certainly true. People like to yeah. make peace with the strong, um, but the uh, Israel was strong five years ago as well, and Israel mm-hmm. uh, and and there's a real interesting question: What do they get out of it? What do the Emiratis and the and the Bahrainis get out of it? In other words, Israel was was already cooperating with them. Israel wasn't just cooperating with them. Israel was desperate to cooperate with them. Israel sees them mm-hmm. as absolutely necessary. We were not going to withhold, you know, any kind of, you know, I don't know what, intelligence assistance, uh, anything related to Iran. We want them. We need them. So We were doing everything for them undercover anyway. What's the point of going out into the open? What do they get out of it, exactly? Maybe some more trade deals? Maybe. I'm not sure how big that trade is going to be. Maybe very significant. I don't know. Um, Those are economies essentially based on oil. So... Anyway, well, the UAE is one of the things that makes them interesting is they have diversified their economy. They're trying very hard to diversify. And the Saudis are as well. And maybe this is part of that. But how shall I put this? Even though we are a fairly well-to-do successful country, uh, there are wealthier countries than us. (laughs) Not not a lot, but here and there, you know, most of the OECD. In other words, why invest... (laughs) In us, they were already getting the military help. They, we were already allies and committed allies because what we've got nowhere to go, and we don't have all that many allies in the region. We're desperate yeah. to have them, 
and the trade part they could get elsewhere. So what what is significant here? What is interesting so here? Why now? And why now? Why now? Right. Now. And and when you actually start to break down the question, it, you realize just that there's a question. And and uh, one of the interesting things was um, we we have all of these. Uh, journalists who are reading the deals, the, the agreements are very, very short. With Bahrain, I think it's a, a page, a single page. Um, and with the Emirates, it's a proper treaty, but even that's about four pages. It's a very short text. And they mention the Palestinians. Now, they don't mention a Palestinian state, which in and of itself is not significant, even though everyone's treating it as significant right now. Um, mm-hmm. The peace treaty with Jordan doesn't mention a Palestinian state in those words. The peace treaty with Egypt doesn't. And in fact, the Oslo Accords don't mention a Palestinian state in the text of the actual agreements. So, um, so it's not hugely significant, except that there's this expectation. Are the, these Arab governments moving away from the Palestinians? Is that what's happening? Is that what we're seeing? And that's, that's the big question. And um, I went through all of the... Um, mentions of the Palestinians, and there's two or three, and some of them are sort of side mentions, without using the word Palestinian, but talking about the need for peace and things like that. Um, peace beyond the context of Bahrain or, or the Emirates. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have uh, started to develop a theory uh, <laughs> that uh, once you start thinking about it, you start looking around for evidence of it to see if maybe you're being silly, um, a lot of pieces are suddenly falling into place. And the idea is, who is the audience for these sort of, um, um, you know, mentions these, um, uh, you know, uh, what's the word for, um, you know, these sops, essentially, you know, they, they occasionally mention the Palestinians, right, because they think they're required to do so, so they do it, and then they move on to the serious stuff. It seems performa, not... Exactly. Performa. So who's the yeah. audience that they're performing for? Mm-hmm. And people have thought that it's their own people. Uh, the Bahrainis especially are a regime that, that is a minority Sunni regime over a majority Shiite population. The opposition in Bahrain has openly opposed this agreement. Uh, the Emirates, there isn't open opposition to the agreement. There's a, they're a much more homogenous society. The citizens, of course, the 88% of the population in the Emirates that aren't citizens is something else. But mm-hmm. the Emirati Emiratis are, uh, are fairly homogenous. Uh, but I, I don't think they're the audience at all. I don't think they have anything to do with this. I am beginning, beginning to suspect that the audience for all these mentions of the Palestinians um, is, um, is, is Netanyahu, is Benjamin Netanyahu. And, and well, my what argument... Does that, what does it mean? Yeah. My argument is very, very uh, simple. Um, the Emiratis and the Bahrainis and the GCC generally, the Saudis, they are one camp in the Middle East. Uh, we'll call them the conservative regimes, the conservative Sunnis, um, and they have two major opposing camps in the Muslim world. And when you when you think in terms of these camps, the entire Middle East and all of its many strange conflicts all make sense. The other two camps are the Shiites, the Iranians, uh, the Alawites who rule Syria, the Assad regime, Hezbollah, the um, Houthis in um, in Yemen. These are all Shiite or very close, Alawites are very, very close to Shiites um, groups that are part of a, 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 um, an axis, a, a tzira, a, um, an axis, axis. Uh, of Shiites throughout the region that work together, operate together, fund each other, train each other, help each other. And then there's another axis uh, of, of essentially Muslim, Muslim brothers. The Muslim Brotherhood organization in Egypt is a, an ideological movement 
that spawned political parties and uh, movements and even identities in many ways throughout the Muslim world. Turkey's AKP party openly and explicitly and ideologically is a sister party and committed and devoted and supportive of financially and politically the Muslim Brotherhood movement in Egypt. Uh, Hamas is a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, both in how they were founded and in their own in their own sense of self. Um, mm-hmm. There's Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan. There's Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, Qatar is essentially a Muslim Brotherhood regime. So there's this, you know, so so uh, Turkey, Qatar, Hamas, the Muslim Brothers in in Egypt are another axis, a a radical Sunni axis. If we just need to label them very simply. And then there are these conservative governments, most of whom are monarchies. Jordan, Egypt is the non-monarchy example, but the Egyptian army essentially is 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 part of this conservative Sunni consensus. In the Western Basically world, they used to be called the moderate. Anyway. Yeah, what the, the Western moderate. world calls moderates, right? Uh, and yeah. what they are is conservatives rather than moderates. Right. Um, and the Saudis, uh, the you know the Moroccan king is is part of this axis. Long story short, the Palestinian issue doesn't matter to anyone. Uh, the, the Turks don't care if the Palestinians live or die. The uh, Saudis Except, of don't course, care. the Palestinians. It matters to the Palestinians. It matters to the Palestinians. <laughs> and by the way, it, it, Some it, of them. It, sh- it should matter profoundly to the Israelis because it will have Absolutely. a very profound impact on Israel's future yeah. and Israel's pro- right. prosperity and Israel's safety and Israel's morality and all the wonderful and important things. And uh, we're, about we're Israel. sharing the same right. area. So right. It, it, it but to take a cynical directly. view of the world, if it doesn't specifically affect you in profound and meaningful ways, you don't care. Very few people care that their iPhones have nickel from some Indonesian nickel mine uh, that is extraordinarily abusive of human rights. People don't feel it's too many degrees removed, so people are, think that an iPhone is a completely neutral object. Uh, and, 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 and when you're too many degrees removed from the Palestinians to the point where it becomes this abstract, I must defend Arab honor or something like that, they don't care. Long story short, the Palestinians represent a, a, a moral vocabulary with which these different axes do battle. The Iranians mm. don't support the Palestinians in any way, except in the, in the military support of Hamas to attack Israel, which arguably is massively detrimental to the Palestinians. But mm. they call it support for the Palestinians. Um, the Turks are funding the groups that are uh, encouraging the violence on the Temple Mount in order to generate the friction that, cre- that puts the Palestinian issue and the Al-Aqsa issue on the agenda so that the radical axis of the Sunni world um, can have its issue to fight the conservative axis of the Sunni world. The conservative Sunnis are saying to Israel, with its talk of Palestinians, they're saying to Israel, Dear Israel, our enemies are your enemies. You Jews, One of the interesting things is in the Emirati uh, deal, it takes a paragraph to discuss how Jews and Arabs are both descendants of Abraham, which is not something that appears in random treaties. But it wants to say that conservative Sunnis say, listen, we have enough Islam, Islamic sources, to say we are doing something deep within conservative Islam. Jews belong here. It's a validation of the Jews that is the necessary step to then make peace with the Jews, warm peace with the Jews. So the conservative Sunnis are saying, we want this peace, we will validate you, you will be a tribe among tribes in the Middle East, you're going to be the weird tribe, the Jews, everyone else is a Muslim tribe, but still, tribe. We want this, we need you to not make us lose on other fronts against the real enemies that we have, the radical Sunnis and the Shiites. 
And that means you need to not attack the Palestinians. You need to not hurt the Palestinians. You need to not generate images of suffering Palestinians. No annexations. Uh, if you're going to go to war in Gaza, make it clean of images of suffering civilians. Um, that, that, I think, is the audience. And uh, that's the entire mm-hmm. argument. Israel needs to, to behave. So help us to brand this in the Arab and Muslim world as something within our tradition and not as something antagonistic to our culture. We want you to brand this within our culture. This I don't deal. think they want Israel to help with that because I don't think Israel can help with that. But, but, mm-hmm. but you know, they're don't doing that. Don't hurt right, it. But, yeah. Right, don't hurt it. The Saudis have their, you know, Islamic, um, um, you know, stamp of uh, validity. Uh, the, um, uh, you know, the kings of uh, Morocco and Jordan claim direct descent from the Prophet. They have their, you know, their... their yeah, exactly. Uh, and, 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 and Israel can't help them with that. But it's, it's a statement to Israel that, listen, we're bringing you in as something real. In other words, what's the Muslim world's relationship with Greece? Uh, Greece. It's a Greece. It's a legitimate thing. There are people. They've been there a long time. They're speaking a language spoken a long time. Legitimate. Mm-hmm. And, and that's we're, you're going to be a kind of Greece. You're going to have your weird religion. Not the true religion. A weird religion. But you are a legitimate people that is legitimately here. And we're going to open up trade, and we're going to open up all these things. Now, we want to do this. That's a very Churchillian analogy. He was fascinated by the similarities of the Greeks and the Jews. He has a whole section. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, These ancient people who are deeply political, who constantly disagree, but always find a way to hold on to their They have a religion-based law of return in Greece. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'll just finish with just this point. For the Arab, for the Arabs, Greek governments who are doing this process, what it gives them to validate Israel is neutralizing the Palestinian issue. If the Israelis are a valid tribe, uh, the Palestinian issue becomes a question of two tribes that can't can't get together. Can't you know? It's not a foreign con- colonialist construct imposed on us by European evil, whatever. Um, it neutralizes the Palestinian issue, and therefore it strengthens the conservative Sunnis in the debate. Uh, with the radicals who use the Palestinian issue to advance the radical cause and radical feelings among Muslims. They want to neutralize the Palestinian issue. And Israel has to play ball because Israel has to make the Palestinian issue die down, calm down. And I think we saw rocket strikes yesterday, significant rocket mm-hmm. strikes at Ashdod, mm-hmm. not, not yeah, meaningless yeah. rocket strikes shot Ashdod, by someone. Ashkelon, yeah. with, with, her, with injured. With, with, with injured injuries. and shrapnel bombs on, on, the, on the ends yeah. of those rockets. Uh, and we saw that because um, Hamas is, of course, Muslim brothers, and Hamas was sending a message, we will not um, quietly let the Palestinian issue neutralize, be, neutralized, be neutralized. So I think that's where, that's what the discourse is. That's what's really going on. And that tells me a couple of things going forward on, in one sentence. Um, Netanyahu can't both have his annexation and get the next three or four countries that he wants. The mm-hmm. Saudis are going to come in at some point. They want to. They're planning it. They're preparing it. That's what the overflight rights means. That's what, um, uh, you know, a lot of little signals the Saudis have sent that they're on board with this normalization process. The UAE and Bahrain wouldn't risk any of this without Saudi approval. Um, mm-hmm. But they're going to make real demands on the Palestinian front. And uh, Netanyahu right. is aware of that and and that's and that's moving forward and so when when israeli uh, right-wing settler groups start campaigning now against these agreements um 
from their perspective, from their interests, um, they're right. This really will mm -hmm. be something that changes that discourse. That's it. Excellent. Can I, can I ask you, I'm going to be a, a bit, I don't know, nitpicky or semantic, but I do think it's... Yeah, I, th I always thought of you as anti-semantic. <laughs> Dad joke. Okay, yeah, sorry. That um, good. gave him a chance to have a little drink and get it, catch his breath. <laughs> so um, is, you're using the word tribe. That's like the key word you're throwing around there. And that, you know, that's an, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're nations and states in the Middle East. You know, that's how theoretically, right, we look at it. Do you mean something by that word tribe, or is it trying to indicate something, or when you say Israel's now, okay, going to be seen as a tribe? There's a discourse in the Arab world about Israel that um, asks the question, is Israel a, well, what the Palestinian narrative claims about Israel, which is that it's this foreign colonialist implant, it's French Algeria, a million, a million Frenchmen came to Algeria, settled in Algeria, uh, and uh, the French government, and the, because of it, you know, it was colonialist, but it was also, it was, colonialist is not in air quotes, it was colonialist, but it, mm -hmm. it, it claimed Algeria as French, you know, it, was, it claimed it as a province of France, as one of the, um, uh, you know, as an administrative part of France, uh, and it thought that that was legitimate because there were a million French citizens there. Um, there was then a 10-year civil war between the 50s and the 60s, and, and a million Frenchmen left Algeria. Uh, I'm, I'm simplifying to the point of cartoonishness, but nevertheless, that is the story the Palestinians tell themselves about us. We are here, we look like we're very big, we're millions of people, but actually, we don't belong here. And there is some kind of an organic, uh, sort of fundamental belongingness that nations have that we lack. Many nations have fundamental belongingness to the place where they are. There's a kind of natural presence. It's a little bit of the romantic mystique of nationalism. And Jews don't have it. They don't have it here. They don't have it anywhere, Hamas would say. Um, and and, well, and religion, so we are, at best their religion. At the best, uh, and then not mm -hmm. such a good one. Um, right. And uh, mm -hmm. that, that is how Palestinian politics talk about Jews. Regular Palestinians, when you talk to them about Jews, that's no longer how they see Jews. They understand mm -hmm. that Jews have their own language, their own culture. They're not going anywhere. They have nowhere else to go. The French could go back to France. There is no France for the Jews. Um, they get that. Ordinary Palestinians who live and work with Israelis know that half of Israelis come from the Muslim and Arab world. Where are they going to go back to? Right. Baghdad? So um, right. there is... So, so there, but there's a... a Palestinian Hamas's warfighting strategy is still premised on the idea that the Jews can go back to France. And ordinary Palestinian discourse in the street now understands that that's a ridiculous thing and that there are no real answers to be had from the Palestinian national movement. So I say tribe out of that sense that the Arab world used to talk about the Zionist entity. Why the Zionist entity? Because we're not a people. We don't have two million school children who have to go to school tomorrow morning despite a closure. We, we, we are not a, uh, you know, a people with our own culture and our own cinema and our own language. We are a, a, a ideological movement implanted here that you can uh, peel off. You could peel off ideological movements. When you peeled Nazism off of Germany, you had, to, you had to firebomb Dresden, but nevertheless, you were not destroying Germany. You were destroying this ideological thing that you peeled off. And then there was the German people, which is a legitimate tribe. It's a legitimate existence. Are we an ideological movement? By the way, the entire BDS movement is premised on us being 
an ideological construct that you can peel off. Right. Otherwise, what are mm -hmm. you boycotting? And a nation? Right. What, do you boy what, what do you expect me to do from your boycott? Pull out of the West Bank right. when Hamas will f definitely take over and attack all my cities? What, what do you expect me to actually do? Well, you think that I'm some kind of ideological construct that you can peel off. So and then um, I'll go home, whatever that is. I'll go and this home. is something, this ideological go entity. Go back to Europe. Well, the go Europeans Europe built this ideological back. entity mm -hmm. over, over decades, if not centuries, <laughs> to convince the Jews, to use the Jews as a way to get white European power into the Middle East. Into and the, Jews the Middle fell East. For it. Yeah. Right, for some and that, reason. And that, yeah, and then all we have to do is pop that bubble and everything resets to... Right. That's the BDS. By the way, that's, that's Mahmoud Abbas's explicit narrative of the Jews. It is the only official narrative the Palestinians have ever had. Yeah. And it's fallen apart. And now the Emiratis and the Bahrainis, they're saying, look, what, what if they're not going anywhere? What if it's mm -hmm. a tribe? What if it's like the Kurds? You can hate mm -hmm. them, you can right. like them, you can bomb them with mustard gas like Saddam did, but they're still a tribe. They're still there. They still have a legitimate right to live. Also, they have the most powerful air force in the region by far. Also, the Mossad can blow things up in Iran when it needs to. Also, maybe we should make peace with these people. Maybe we need these people. And maybe the Palestinians telling us they don't exist as a people is not a useful thing to tell us. It's, not a, it's no longer relevant to our needs. And, and, and so there's this disconnect. Now, as this disconnect grows, more and more countries want to, more and more of these conservative Sunni regimes, more and more of these conservative Sunni peoples. I mean, it's, it's complicated, the question of dictatorship in the Arab world. They are dictatorships. When you topple them, you get a democracy of people who are also very tyrannical. So it's, it's a very weird, complicated thing. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, um, um, there is this desire to make uh, normalization with Israel. And the, 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 the problem is that there are critics, and those critics are entire regimes and entire movements that have double-digit percentages of the Sunni world uh, within their orbit that use the Palestinian issue as, as their major club, their major ideological club against the conservative mm -hmm. Sunnis. And so we need to neutralize that issue, and that issue is the Palestinians. So Israel must uh, now concede to the Palestinian issue a lot going forward if it wants the Saudis. But, but it's going to be getting a lot. In other words, the Arab peace deal of 2002 was front-loaded. Israel gives everything. And then the Arab world normalizes. And now the Arab world is saying the Iranian threat is so great right. that we'll do it the other way around. We'll front-load for the Israelis' benefit. We're going to give everything. You Israelis literally just don't do anything bad. Right, but it's as, as, for, right. as for the Palestinians, even if they get some concessions out of this, Let's, let's assume we get right and Saudi Arabia will get Israel to whatever those are, I don't know. But it's still, at least on the political level, it's, it's attacking the political narrative of the Palestinians. Right? It's a further fundamental... It's, which, which, by the way, let's be right. fair, it's not you know? just the political narrative of the Palestinians. This has been the political narrative of most of the Arab world, if not all of the Arab world, right. at least officially, even though there's obviously been... You know, communication and cooperation under the table. But officially, this has been the Arab, and this new children of Abraham narrative is an attempt to replace that, not only within that conservative world, but to say we, but what you're arguing, I think, Haviv, is we want that to become the narrative throughout the region beyond our, we're accepting it. We want it to spread. Israel, don't screw this up. Right. By being cruel 
to the Palestinians. Palestinians, right. By being a toxic tribe that's impinging on Arab tribes, if you want to be a good neighbor tribe, then be a good neighbor. If the Palestinians are suffering, the Palestinian claim, if the Palestinians are visibly suffering, photogenically suffering. The, the, the issue here is... Let's, let's say pub- media suffering. Let's say media public suffering. Public perception right? in the Arab world. Yeah. That's the issue. And Brand that suffering, are, right? Right. And that we live in a branding world. Right, because the Palestinians are suffering. I mean, objectively, the Palestinians are suffering. And we have very detailed polling telling us how the Palestinians are suffering, what they perceive. They lack political and civil rights. They lack political and civil rights. And, um, you know, the Israeli army, there's a lot of this debate in Israel. Is the Israeli army very moral or extremely moral? Um, Hmm. And the problem is that an incredibly moral army overseeing a civilian population that doesn't elect the army's commanders is still going to screw it up big time. In other words, mm-hmm. yeah. you don't, even if you're the that city, extremely you, moral army... It doesn't, matter how, how, right, it doesn't matter how, argue, how much you argue about being morally, if you're still at an army right. occupation... If you give a dirty job to a moral army, they're gonna, it's a dirty job. There's, it's it, a dirty it is, job. It, it's, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and the army It may be this. necessary. It may be necessary. The army, the, and the army may not want to do it. But, the army does not want to do it, and it has never yeah. wanted to do it. And it's and right. and, and, and it's not po- what armies are designed for. Exactly, and the army has had to redesign itself for that. And it's one of the reasons the army hasn't been designed for the kind of battle we had in two thousand six in Lebanon. One of the reasons mm-hmm. that that wasn't something we did well was that all of our infantry had been essentially training in the West Bank to do something very mm-hmm. different, you know, for forty years. So. Long story short, uh, it's not about whether, it's not about the objective question of Palestinian suffering. It's about whether the Arab world perceives and f- has a need to feel viscerally and immediately in the media cycle at, at Palestinian suffering. Because if it does, then the Palestinian narrative of Palestinian suffering becomes more important than some mm-hmm. kind of strategic or you know historic you know analysis that we the Bahrainis prefer you know, be imposed on this conflict rather than what the Palestinians claim is happening. Even if what the Palestinians claim is happening is ridiculous, because they're the ones suffering, that's what we're going to discuss. It's it a reinforces bit like, the Zionist entity right. brand exactly. and undermines the Abrahamic cosmos Right. Brand. There's a debate like this about uh, Black Lives Matter in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, black suffering in America is real, profound, historic, ancient, uh, you know, generations long, uh, and current and immediate. And so the, the, the story that, that black activists in BLM give that suffering is more important than the sort of critical, you know, cynical historian, academic might, might, might come to this issue and say, okay, well, yes, but also, and also this, and also that, and also By the way, there's a, there's, a, there's, there's a historic parallel to when the civil rights movement was in full swing in the 60s, America was at, at, at the... I almost said the heat of the Cold War, but I guess I should say at the height of the Cold War. And that was a branding exercise of saying the Reds are evil. And now we see, you know, cops sending dogs and and fire hoses on black middle school kids. And, well, that hurt the branding. And that was part of what made Americans in a complex multivariable situation that soviet propaganda of oh look the democracies claim look how they treat black people that was not that was explicit in the in the engine and 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 martin luther king chose selma because it had a sheriff famous for being unbelievably brutal and he wanted that brutality because he wanted it televised uh so the power in our own history we don't have to look at our own history right the holocaust 
<laughs> yep. Helped us, you know, propaganda-wise in the in the political, you know, diplomacy. Let's put it that Say way. Say what right? you want, but the Jews really do need a state, right? Yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah. So your 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 approach has an, you know clear historical analogies. I think. So the uh, yeah the Palestinians have to stop suffering so that they can stop controlling the story yeah. of their suffering. Mm-hmm. Is is what right. I think the GCC countries are saying to Israel. So make sure they stop suffering. Let me uh, throw out another variable, yeah. and you tell me what you think of how relevant it is. If Trump loses, the Biden administration is going to bring in the same people who brought you the Iranian deal. And once again, the conservative Muslim world uh, is going to feel abandoned with an attempt to reassert American relationship, you know, positive relationship with Iran. Therefore, let's lock this in and make it almost impossible for a Biden administration to play that game again with us. Because with, with the thawing of the relationship with Israel, even a Biden administration, even Susan Rice is going to have trouble turning on Saudi Arabia and the UAE. That is such a fascinating question. Um, off the top of my head, that seems to me the the, the essential driver uh, of Netanyahu, of what he's doing. Yeah. He's saying, lock in everything, yeah. lock it in now. Yep. Because Democrats have a record of having a lot of very emotional, moral ideas and f***ing it up. Excuse my French. Uh, sorry <laughs> yeah. to the educators. Uh, but just, you know, Barack Obama said, we're resetting uh, our relationship after the terrible Bush years. Uh, yeah. His first trip to the region, he goes to Istanbul, gives a speech in the Turkish parliament, goes to Cairo, gives a speech uh, to the Muslim world in Cairo. And deliberately and explicitly, and officials in the White House say this is a choice, skip over Israel in that first visit. Mm-hmm. And that was such a terrible mistake. He gets right. voted in, there's 70% favorability rating in Israel when he's elected. And by 2010, there's, or even by late 2009, there's single-digit favorability. Nobody trusts him anymore in Israel. Mm-hmm. And then when right. he comes in and says, hey, Israelis, take a risk of Hamas taking over the West Bank by starting a serious peace process that ends up with you pulling out of the West Bank, the Israelis are like, why? Because, and, you know, Israelis, my perception of Israelis, my understanding, and there's some good polling on this, but not always explicit in exactly the questions I wanted asked, but what Israelis never thought Obama was an enemy of theirs. They thought Obama was so incompetent and so solipsistic and so worked up with his own sort of being Obama that he was just not able to function as a serious strategist in the Middle East and therefore couldn't be relied on. Um, and 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 that yeah, I mean I think that, the perception yeah. was is the general perception that we often we have of those in the in the West, so to speak, right? That they don't really understand us or the Middle East or us in the Middle East, right? right? So there's a danger of a mm-hmm. Biden administration coming in and saying, you know, this Iran thing just let Iran start massively enriching. So let's get that. Well, back well on I mean, track. is he going to hire Ben Rhodes? Is he going to hire Susan Rice? Is he going to bring in the same brain trust that that ran? Uh, the when an administration arguably in, incompetent Obama administration's Middle East policy is it the same people? And if so, we better watch. I, I, I agree with you that I think Netanyahu is very much working for that. But I, I, I'm arguing that perhaps. No, I'm agreeing that, with you. That was your yeah. Uh, insight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no. You said that about Netanyahu. But I'm saying I think the Arab leaders of the of that of the the Saudi Arabian axis 
I think are, are in the same boat. I think they had the same issues with the Obama administration, and they're trying right. to build a, a, a firewall against uh, p- people. I think were at best well-intentioned morons, but really yeah. did not understand the Middle Here, East. Here, you know, when it comes to what's happening uh, in in this region, one of the reasons I think yeah. that Republicans are better at dealing with this region, even with the disasters of the Iraq War. Even I mean, we should mm-hmm. you know we should put you know. <laughs> Uh, democratic buffoonery, you know, should only be put alongside Republican, you know, they invade Iraq in 2003, and then the brilliant decision is made to uh, disband the Iraqi army. So 300,000 Sunni young men with firearms go home without salaries. That was the greatest idea to stabilize an Iraq that no longer had a government. But then um, they did create an unmotivated army that tore off their uniforms and ran away from ISIS at their first sign of danger. So well, the army they disbanded was had, parts of that became ISIS. So, yeah, you know. Um, yeah. But but so there were. I just I want to be clear. This is not you know the arguing that Democrats are buffoons is not an argument that Republicans are somehow geniuses. But what Republicans have done in this region, um, both under Bush and under uh, Trump, is that they have t- let. Um, Israeli strategic planners uh, and Gulf strategic planners lead their sense mm-hmm. of where things stand. And so it is, it, it, you know, if you're pro-Iran, um, uh, uh, then then that bothers you because America is sort of listening too much to the side that is opposed to your side. But there's at least a coherence to American policy. There is at least a, mm-hmm. a sort of, a, it fits in the grooves of how the region actually works because people in the region, operating in the region, are sort of the guides to this, as opposed to the Obama foreign policy, where the policy never left the sort of inner mental space of the heads of Democrats, where Obama was giving tremendous you know, moral speeches in Cairo that deeply mattered to somebody for some reason. Um, so, so there isn't that advantage. Um, I, yeah, I, I think I the flaws think, uh, in both of those thinking, the Republican and the Democrat, the flaws come in when they say we can direct events in the Middle East because we're America. The smarter thinking is always when they step back and say, OK, you have these three axes, you know, the Shia, the Muslim Brotherhood and the conservatives. How do who do we ally with to let them drive what happens there? Because we don't have the driver's seat. We're America. Right. We're not we're not there. Right. You're and we're not. not this is not America. Yeah, this is not a Marshall Plan in uh, in the Middle East. This right. is we're just it matters to us, but let's let the drivers who 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 are better at holding the steering wheel take control. Right, and let me just say, uh, Joe Biden from has a long, long, long foreign policy record, which mm-hmm. is not true usually, not, certainly not recently of any president. Well, as a senator, that was part of his. He was a know, senator. He was foreign away. affairs committee. He was, right, but not just a senator. He was a foreign affairs senator. Yeah. Right, and 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 uh, and famously knowledgeable of the on mm-hmm. those issues. Um, I suspect he will have a much much better start than the Obama administration, which was very full of itself yeah. and also deeply ignorant and so unable to compensate for its ignorance because it refused to be aware of its ignorance. So uh, we're going to get a Joe Biden who knows a lot and also knows when he doesn't know something. I think that'll be a, a better, if, if Joe Biden wins, I think that'll be a better, I suspect, you know, uh, even if there's a Ben Rhodes, uh, Obama was so detached from the hard realities and the real you know, ways that this region works that, that Ben Rhodes could run policy instead of just yeah. being a speechwriter, which was, you know, what his business card job was. Um, 
So I, I, that's that, my that was crazy. And the foreign policy world in the United States was like, who the heck is this guy? And why isn't Obama listening to us? Right, right. And now yeah. they feel about Jared Kushner. But at least yeah, Jared Kushner exactly. is taking his yeah, cue from very BB and yeah. MBS and not from, you know, himself, his right. own moral compass. Okay. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's, it, that's where I think things are going with that. But. Yeah, I don't think any administ- American, administ- I, I, think, I think we're going to see diminishing that, that uh, paradigm shift of we don't drive things in other countries, we, which, which Trump expresses as America first, whether he means it or how he means that exactly. But the sense that America has to get its domestic house in order, I think, is going to be the primary concern of the next administration, whichever it is. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's maybe that's a good thing. Uh, America's withdrawing. Everyone's retooling for that withdrawal. Everyone. I mean, the German Air Force is 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 you know thinking about you know being a more serious air force because of America's sort of withdrawal from the region, the pivot toward the Pacific, um, even the pivot toward the Pacific countries like the Philippines and Vietnam and Taiwan are all thinking about expanding and strengthening their military capabilities and Japan. Um, to face China with the notion that the U.S. is not as capable as it used to be, um, doesn't want to be as capable as it used to be. So um, everyone is kind of rethinking the world stage based on this American withdrawal. Um, And I'm wondering if maybe that's not a terrible thing, if America withdraws from acting in the region when it has acted just just incompetently, just unforgivably Mm -hmm. incompetently time and again, to strategically funding or supporting mm-hmm. or selling weapon systems of certain kinds uh, to certain agents that America feels serves America's interests. So um, what we saw now, for example, Trump doesn't get credit for, for the peace deal with the UAE. Trump did nothing. He gets some. What he gets credit for is um, greasing the wheels, is yeah, no, making yeah. it not screwing it up, which sounds yeah. you know, which sounds very little, but actually is a tremendous thing because sure. Jimmy, Jimmy Carter, it. Jimmy Carter exactly. almost, almost screwed That's, up the Israeli Egyptian peace. Okay, but but he in the end he did it. In other words, Americans succeed when they take the back seat and help facilitate. Right. True. Carter, and the fact that the Yemenis are going to get F thirty five now. Day, right. Yeah. Right. Right. And when That's they right. took the driver's seat with the Palestinians, when they took the the steering wheel, it didn't go anywhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, that your point just now, I think, may come bring us full circle to part of your original question. If if the UAE can make business deals with much richer countries, why are they focusing here? And part of it is that the world is, I think, turning towards regional thinking and that we yes, they do want to open up trade with China and Europe. And, and but to have a, a, a an economic superpower to ally within the Middle East is also beneficial, which doesn't solve your problem of why now. No, it, but I do it think it's a relevant factor. Yeah, and also uh, one of the th- advantages that Israel gives them, Israel is a little bit, a little bit, very little bit, but nevertheless, partly a replacement to America. America mm-hmm. is uh, for small countries like Bahrain and UAE and Oman um, faced with Iran. Oman has a good relationship with Iran, but Iran is a little nutty, so you, you can never really trust it. Um, your good relationship with them, but for those kinds of countries, America is a strategic depth. Unless mm-hmm. America no longer acts in the region, in which case it no longer is a strategic depth. America will be very sad if you're overrun, but it won't right. be more than sad. Now, the Israelis right. can't leave, and that's a huge advantage that right. Israel has as an ally. Right. They're stuck here. <laughs> so if, if, if the Israelis are, are inextricably tied to you, 
economically, and you're actually a terrible blow to them economically if you're overrun, as well as their general need to contain Iran, um, that's not a terrible thing. So I think that's also partly locking Israel in. You know, these kinds of actions always have 11 different intersecting uh, motives and strategic right. thoughts. And, and It's yeah. true, but there's usually bigger pros and cons, whereas at least from, I, I, I would argue from our perspective, it's, it's win, win, win. Like it's, it's, it works well for us, it works well for them, and it works well for the region. Unless you really, really wanted annexation. Yeah, right. And there right. is a subset of Israeli society, probably yeah. 15, 20%, that was just deeply committed to annexation yeah. as a permanent, eternal expression of our belonging to our biblical homeland. Well, and I don't think that, they believe the Abrahamic brothers' right. narrative. No. I think they believe in they believe in a, a third narrative, not the Zionist entity narrative or the Abrahamic brothers. They believe in a third narrative of I don't know what you want to call it, Jewish hegemony or something of Jewish reassertion. I don't know. Yeah, oh, you don't have to be mean about it. Uh, redemption. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Of of yeah full maybe, full, maybe. full flourishing redemption. Let's call yeah. it the positive. Uh, or yeah. or they just want more sense of security that they can own their homes. Yes, there's that group. And security, uh-huh. security through strength. Well, whatever, We're not, we don't have time to tease out that third narrative. But, but, yeah. that's it. but they don't believe this uh, UAE narrative either. You're right. But, I, but you, you feel strongly that's a minority of Israelis. We had a poll on annexation back in uh, June that said mm-hmm. that something like 45% of Israelis support annexation and 35 roughly percent oppose it. Um, mm-hmm. So generally a plurality or four. And then we had a poll uh, last month uh, where the UAE conditioned normalization on freezing the annexation. Uh, They called it stopping. It's not clear if that means canceling. Stopping annexation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then Israelis were said, so if, if, you know, the UAE says it's either or. So either or, which do you choose, the normalization Mm -hmm. of the UAE? uh, And it was 80% uh, normalization with the UAE. Oh, wow. And annexation dropped to 16%. So the support for annexation, even if it costs us something, is mm-hmm. about 16%. Uh, mm-hmm. And when annexation, when Bibi tells the country, look, we can do annexation and it won't cost us anything, then it's about 45%, which a lot of people are just saying, look, I trust Bibi to do this, you know, not stupidly. Um, I would argue you can't do it without costing something. There's a long-term cost in, in validating and strengthening right the Muslim Brothers narrative in the region. You will feel that cost in Turkey in 10 years. You will feel that cost in all kinds of different places. But that's an argument of mine. Most ordinary Israelis are trying to live their lives and doing their things and understand what they understand and don't spend all day long reading about these issues like I do. And so um, so that, that doesn't resonate, those kinds of problems. So if it's safe, 45% want annexation. If it costs anything at all, that drops to 16%. 16% is the Israelis who believe deeply in annexation, in, in what it represents. Wow. All right. And that's, I mean, that's where we are today. Right. Wow. Okay. That's so helpful. Right. That's so much to think about. That's so much to unpack. Thank you, as always, so much, Khaviv. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. Wow. Always an amazing uh, uh, adventure, really, like intellectually. Uh, Alan, thanks. thanks. Shana Tova to everybody. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. And you don't have to hang up, guys, but let's stop the recordings. It's the end of the episode. Bye-bye.